You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam claim that God is a perfect being. I'd like such a God, all might make sense. But I struggle to know whether such a theistic God exists. The import is obvious. How to find out is not. One test is whether God's perfections work well together. If there's a clash, or worse, a contradiction, then I must question whether such a perfect being can exist. What makes God a perfect being? The theistic claim is that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and also all-free. What does it mean for God to be all-free? Must God be able to do absolutely everything? Can God be brave? Well, nothing can threaten God. Can God improve? Was not God already perfect? For God to be God, how can God be constrained at all? How can God not be free? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. I've decided to stress test God. Like regulators who stress test banks to see if banks can survive financial crises, I stress test God to see if God can survive logical crises. Am I being arrogant or absurd? Putting the creator of the cosmos to my own concocted test. I only want to seek God, but in ways that make sense. If God is a perfect being cannot pass a stress test of logic, then either there is no God or God is not perfect. And if God does pass the stress test, that wouldn't prove that such God exists, of course, only that such a God might exist. So here's the stress test. Can God as a perfect being have complete freedom? For example, did God have a choice whether or not to create a world? My quest takes me to the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul to attend a Theology of Free Will workshop. I begin with an expert on possible and best worlds, philosopher Michael Almeida. Michael, I'd love to know whether God exists. And one of the ways I like to test it is to, to ask questions about what this God would be like. And one of the interesting areas is so-called God's freedom. Could God, in God's freedom, have decided never to make a, a created world? If you're asking me, could he have created a world in which there aren't any contingent beings, like you and I? Uh, yes. Could he have created a, no world at all? No. So no matter what he does, there's a world. Because God is, is in that world. But did God have to create something beyond the concrete nature of God? I think no. I don't see anything in his nature that would require that he create. So in other words, I'm saying this. There's a, there's a world in which there aren't any creatures at all. There's just God. So, so that gives God the freedoms. 
because yeah. some people would say that God has to create because it's part of his nature, and that, in a sense, may be a wonderful part of his nature, but it, it limits his freedom. It's certainly, right? But again, it's, it's hard to see exactly what about his nature would require him to create things. All right, so I'm, I'm happy you've given God some freedom, and, uh, and we're also happy that God decided to create this world. All right, the next question, let's go forward. Could God have created a, a different total state of affairs than he did? So let me try to change the question a little bit. I don't think he actually creates worlds. God discovers the possibilities the way you and I do. So what's possible? Here's one thing, this table could have been three inches to the left. We both agree, that's possible. There's a right. world in which that's true. Right. It's not the actual world, right? right? So there are lots of worlds and lots of variations. God knows them all, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but he doesn't make the possibilities. The possibilities are there. In fact, anything that's possible is necessarily possible. Could God have created me right-handed? I turn out I'm left-handed. Yeah, he could have created me right-handed. In fact, it's necessary that in some world that he does. This is what's strange about this. Since it's possible that I'm right-handed, there's some world in which God creates me right-handed, and really, he had to do it in some world. So it's- Because it's a possibility. Exactly, the possibilities constrain what he can do, right? But they open up what he can do too. One could respond to the existence of evil, for example, this way, and saying, why are the worlds out there in which evil things happen? Not just our world, but other worlds. Well, really, since it's possible that those things happen, God's got very little choice about it. He's got to let it happen in some world, in the same way. When you say let it happen in some world, that doesn't mean he actualizes that world. He, that means that world is a, a, a possibility in God's logical space. That's right, but at that world it's actual. That's the thing, that's all you need. But are you differentiating possible worlds from actual worlds? I, I am, I'm saying the actual is just one among the possible worlds, right? So, so where is God's freedom in this? As soon as you stretch out what he can do through all of the possibilities, sort of that's opening up what he can do, and it limits what he can do. He can't, for example, make there be fewer possibilities than there are. Mm -hmm. So he can't say, hey, I think I'll just make one possible world and there won't be any others. Just like one possibility. That's not, that's not possible. When you're saying, does God have to consider in God's mind all the possible worlds? Is that something that God is burdened by? I don't think so. I mean, I think, well, if you're, sort of, you're omnipotent, you're, you know everything, it's not hard to do. Nothing takes any exertion. Uh, okay, but, but you're not troubled by all of this clutter in God's mind. I don't think it's clutter. I don't think it would be. His mind is so big. You know? yeah. So he's got all the possibilities. But when you think of all the possibilities and permutations of relationships, it's, yeah. it's uh, transcendental infinities beyond uh, conception. Yeah, so just sort of exalt your view of what God is like. And so God's freedom is to handle all of these. Considering you have this gigantic number of possibilities, right. God selected at least this one, yes. we know. And how did God go through that process? I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you don't? <laughs> <laughs> I, thought you, I thought you did. <laughs> the, the standard answer is to say he chose the best. And then you have to define that. Yeah, then, but then you have to say things like this is the best world. Right? It's yeah. like obvious to you and I that it's not the best. This is a test of whether the concept of God as formulated traditionally by uh, Western religion at least yeah. is a coherent one. Yeah, that's true. Part of it is that you want to be sure that you don't assume that God can do things that nothing could do, like shrink the number of possible worlds or increase the number of possible worlds. No, he's, he can't do those things. 
to Michael, God is free to create or not create contingent beings, like universes and stuff in universes. But God is not free to alter an infinite number of possibilities. God cannot add or subtract even one possibility, which sounds as if God is not all free. But what might sound right by human standards may not by God's standards. God, if there is a God, cannot be a superhuman. God, if there is a God, must be radically other. I ask a philosopher of religion with a radical understanding of God's options and freedom, Hugh McCann. Well, what, what it means to me to say that God is free is simply to say that his action is not hemmed in or confined or constrained by any consideration whatever. Now that definition sounds constrained to me because you didn't say that God is free to do anything. No, I didn't. And the reason is because that suggests that prior to God taking action in one way or another, that there are these prior options. I think what gets us in trouble in thinking about divine freedom is more than anything else, what I call the deliberational model of creation, mm. according to which there are these prior options that are available to God in one way or another. And, uh, and then he evaluates them, selects the best one, and realizes it in existence. Then you have a twofold problem. One is you have to ask, where did the prior options come from? And there are two possibilities. You could say, well, God created those too. In which case you say, well, why bother them? Why not just go ahead and create the world rather than creating the possibilities and then creating the world? Are there possible possibilities that you're selecting? You know, he's not going to create the possibilities by considering options, right? Because the possibilities are the options. So that's the first thing. Or you might say that God doesn't create the options. If he doesn't create the options, then it seems to me like they're constraining him because he has to depend on them being available in advance in order to be able to create. They're there, and he just picks the one that he yeah, well, picks what's what's best. So that introduces dependence in God, and, and, and so you don't want that either. Well, then it doesn't really look like these advanced models or advanced possibilities for creation are, are going to be a very helpful thing. They're going to be more trouble than they're worth. But there's a second dimension to the problem, and that's that if they are available in advance, then we're tempted to think that God is going to be constrained to pick the best one if there is a best one, constrained by, I guess, some prior disposition on his part to behave well. He can't resist. He says, got uh, to go ahead and do it. And, and if, in fact, there are no prior possibilities, then God isn't compelled to produce the best one. Even if he does have an inveterate disposition to be a nice guy, there's nothing to be a nice guy about until the world gets created, and then the problem's over with. There is a, a, an internal coherence of what you say. It sounds so fantastic in the worst sense of the word, in the sense that it's hard to believe that anything like that, like this whole world, could, could come about just like that's the only, the only way without any possibilities. This just has to be this way. Right. I mean, that, that just attacks all credulity. What you're saying is, in order for God to be coherent in the sense of, of being free, that there is only one way that things could happen. No, I'm not. I'm, because that's talking about prior possibilities or prior necessities. There's not one way. There's not, there are no coulds. But then you're saying that it was impossible for there even to have been any other possibility 
other than the it that there is, in, in some hard sense, in no, some- I'm not saying that because that is suggesting a constraint, that it had to be the way it went. It didn't have to be the way it went, it just went the way it went. And now, once it's gone that way, now we can start talking about possibilities. We can look at the world itself and we can say, well, it looks to me as though there could have been, let's say, four volcanoes on Hawaii instead of two or three or whatever it is, right? But if you're talking about the position of God as creator, okay, Prior to creation, there's no Hawaii to be talking about. There's no anything to be talking about. There's no anything to be talking about. There's no such thing as a volcano. There's no such kind of thing as a volcano. There's nothing. And so, and so there's nothing to be discussed. There's no sense to the claim that it could have been different, and there's no sense to the claim that it had to be this way. The only thing that makes sense is this is the way it goes. And that has some internal coherence to it, but as part of the internal coherence, I would say that your God is one of the least free gods I have ever heard. Well, we're going to wind up discussing, if, if you put it that way, what freedom is for God. And, and freedom, as I see it, is simply that God's action not be constrained. And it's certainly not constrained on the view that I have because there are no prior possibilities that he's dependent upon. There are no prior necessities that he's driven to realize. There's just what he does. What you claims, no prior possibilities when God created the world, seems to straitjacket God, seems to allow God no freedom whatsoever. No prior possibilities, it sounds ludicrous, but I find myself oddly attracted. Could it be, from a God-plane perspective, possibilities are the straitjacket, not the absence of possibilities? So one philosopher has God facing an infinite number of possibilities, another, no possibilities at all. That sounds like philosophers. Though the two philosophers disagree on God's relationship with possibilities, both limit God's freedom. I like radical conceptions of God. If there is a God, it's not whether our conception of God is too radical, but whether our conception is radical enough. I continue my pursuit of God's freedom by exploring the mysterious classical claim that God has no parts, that God is simple. What's the relationship between God's simplicity and God's freedom? I ask the organizer of the Theology of Free Will workshop, philosopher Matthews Grant. What does divine simplicity say? Well, God has, has no parts. The divine essence or substance is not composed in any way. But it also holds that God doesn't have any intrinsic accidents distinct from the divine substance. So why does this pose a, a, a puzzle for divine freedom? Well, if God doesn't have any intrinsic accidents, then it looks like God's willing, God's choosing, would just have to be identical to the divine substance, the divine essence. Then it looks like to be God just is to will to create the world. Mm -hmm. It looks like God could not have done otherwise than create. Which is the opposite of freedom. <laughs> and then your freedom looks like it's out the window, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I, I think the solution to this is uh, to deny, in fact, that God's willing, God's choosing, God's creating is identical with the divine essence. Instead, uh, what we want to understand is for God to create is just for God to bring about the world. But God's bringing about the world is not 
anything intrinsic to God, much less is it identical with God himself. God's bringing about the world just is the world uh, quad dependent on God or the world with a relation of dependence on God. And if you sort of point to what, what is creation, what is the act of, of creation, or what is the act of God's willing the world, it's not anything in God. Rather, it's something extrinsic to God, then you can reconcile divine simplicity with uh, divine freedom. So with this sequence of events, walk me through where the, the creative act then is, uh, is consistent with, with God's freedom. So you think that there, there's first sort of inside the creator, inside the agent, there's first some sort of mental act of evolution or something like that. And then subsequent to that, there is the product as it were, right? That which is being created. I wanna cut out that first part. I wanna say that there isn't in God a, a decree or a volition. Yeah. My solution is to say that it's a mistake to identify God's willing with respect to creatures as something intrinsic in, in God. The, the willing? The willing with respect it to creatures is not is intrinsic, not intrinsic the to God. Willing is it's, not an, intrinsic. it's what we might call an, an extrinsic uh, property. The, 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 the willing, God's willing. The that's willing right. is extrinsic? Yes, oh, that right. sounds like you're cheating. Yeah. Well, I don't think so. I think there are some there are parallels here uh, in, in non-theistic contexts. So you have a case where you have an agent whose act consists in the bringing about of some effect. What this suggests is that you can have this effect that is distinct from an agent, which is related to the agent by way of a kind of dependence, mm -hmm. right? I wanna say something, there's something similar in the case of God and the world, right? The world is related, has a dependence relation on God. And I wanna say what that is, is God's, uh, also God's willing the world. So his bringing about the world is the world's dependence relation to God because God's bringing about the world uh, for, for some sort of reason. And I think it's plausible uh, to move it outside of God, to think of God's causing the world to be simply the world with a relation of dependence on God, need not be something uh, that is intrinsic to God. So that enables you to maintain divine simplicity, God's freedom, and God's the creator in a very harmonious package. That's the idea. <laughs> Several core theistic doctrines do seem to fight God's freedom. I could be wrong, but I cannot here deny this apparent conflict. Perhaps the problem relates to freedom, in other words, to free will. So here's another kind of stress test. Not a stress test of God, but a stress test of free will, using God to apply the stress. Like physics can be advanced by the extreme conditions of a black hole, so free will can be advanced by the extreme conditions of a supreme being. Under what theological conditions is free will stressed most? When God's knowledge of the future is involved, the tension between God's foreknowledge and God's free will is perplexing. I go to an expert on God's foreknowledge and the puzzles it causes, philosopher of religion, David Hunt. You've now opposed divine foreknowledge with a divine freedom because if God has foreknowledge, then God's freedom is now constrained. So that, that's a new kind of tension that right. you've created. 
the tension between foreknowledge and freedom. Yeah, I think that there are three problems that divine foreknowledge generates, and I, I see them linked uh, together. Knowledge in general should enhance one's agency, one's ability to get done what one wants to get done. Mm -hmm. God is the supreme agent. He should be supremely able to achieve his objectives. Uh, so you would think the more knowledge he has, uh, the better position he is. In fact, that would be a reason to give him omniscience. But surprisingly, when that omniscience includes foreknowledge, there are three arguments designed to show that it doesn't enhance an agent's agency. <laughs> Very surprising. I mean, this is counterintuitive. And the traditional divine foreknowledge argument, which is set up as a conflict between divine foreknowledge and human freedom, and can equally well be set up as a conflict between divine foreknowledge and God's freedom, because mm -hmm. if he really does know everything, if his foreknowledge is exhaustive, that's gonna include not only my future actions, right. but his future actions. <laughs> right. So if that's a good argument, it's gonna cause a problem for God's freedom as well. I call that argument the problem of theological fatalism. That's uh, fairly traditional in the literature. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have to come up with my own names for, <laughs> uh, for the two others uh, that I see as somehow linked uh, here. Mm -hmm. So suppose that uh, some months ago, I wondered whether I should come to a particular philosophy conference. If things go well at the conference, then I'll be glad I went. But how will I know that? Suppose time travel is possible, and I get a time traveling team of photographers to get in a time machine, go to the conference, take a video of my session and come <laughs> back and show it to me so I can see how it went. So I know exactly what I'm gonna do. Mm. And I'm facing a foreknowledge problem. I know what I'm gonna do. How can I act otherwise? So that illustrates that problem, the traditional problem. But here's a couple of other problems. Once I get to the conference, I, am I gonna just go through the motions? I mean, I already know what I'm gonna do. I, can I approach my session as an agent would normally do, deliberating about what to do? Control of so your, your own actions. Yeah, I'm a, I may approach the, my session as a passive agent, just going through the motions. And then also, uh, there's a, and I call that the problem of, in the divine case, divine passivity. Because God knows what God is going to do, mm -hmm. that means God is subject to, to those forces and has no agency at that moment. Right. Because God couldn't have been wrong when he knew that some time ago. One cannot deliberate over what one already knows is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's the issue here. Uh, deliberation here is just uh, an important part of what agents do. We, we form intentions about our actions, otherwise they're not intentional actions. They're not really cases of agency. So if something like that principle is right, I'm gonna suffer from agential sclerosis <laughs> because I already know what I'm gonna do. Right, so uh, we had divine fatalism, divine passivity. Passivity, and, there's and a then third. the last problem uh, I call in the divine case, uh, the problem of providential futility. You want to be able to use your knowledge in order to make a difference to what you do. But how can you use this foreknowledge of what goes on in your session to make a difference to what you do because it's too late to make a difference to it? In a way, it's already happened. It's there on the tape, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So it looks like any effort you engage to use 
your foreknowledge in a productive way to enhance your agency, uh, that knowledge is just coming to you too late in the explanatory order mm. <laughs> for you to do anything with it. Mm. Three different problems. Uh, but, yeah, but all inter, interrelated. Interrelated. All, and so what kind of God are you left with? You're left with a God uh, who has uh, real problems with agency. And I think divine agency is one of the divine attributes. If you're going to give up any uh, in response to some problem, uh, having to do with uh, an internal conflict, an alleged conflict among divine attributes. Mm. I think divine agency is one of the last ones you want to give up because God's supposed to be the ultimate explainer mm. and he explains as an agent. Uh, so you're going to be left with much diminished God, I think. So you've got to solve the problems. God's foreknowledge is a problem for humans because it seems to limit and undermine human free will. God's foreknowledge is also a problem for God because it seems to limit God's own actions and undermine God's own freedom. If God knows now what God will do in the future, then this current fact constrains what God can do in the future. The test of God's freedom is whether God has real choices. Several core theistic doctrines do challenge God's freedom, and I see two possible consequences. Either God's freedom does not cohere with God's other traits, contradicting our traditional concept of God, at least God as a perfect being, or our human capacity to comprehend God-plain existence is hopelessly inadequate. But then I'd worry whether human inadequacy allows too easy an escape from problems about God. Having stress test God, I am not scared and do not feel guilty. I feel elated, actually, knowing more of what it means for God and for us to be truly free and to be closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.